Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Bike Talk amplifies the voices of people who seek to replace the car-dominant paradigm with a bicycle-friendly future. Today, we have an interview with Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition's Executive Director Galen Mook and the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition's Executive Director Eli Akira Kaufman. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Bike Talk here. We are the bi-coastal, hour-long, bicycle-themed talk show. My name is Galen Mook. I'm Executive Director of Mass Bike. We're the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. And we are joined on the other coast by Eli Kaufman from the L.A. County Bicycle Coalition. Eli, how are you doing out there? We're doing great. If you would, wouldn't mind sharing so the West Coast folks could get a sense of what's going on out there. We actually did get the governor to sign into law Class 1 and Class 2 e-bikes to be defined as electric bicycles. Um, so we got most of the bill that MassBike was pursuing in terms of making sure e-bikes that are hugely popular, getting a whole bunch of new people out rolling. They're no longer considered mopeds, no longer gas powered, no longer motor vehicles, but they are in the bicycle category now. So that was a big win. Um, and I think we should all give a quick round of applause for that one because we all love e-bikes. Woohoo! And along those lines, MassBike has been engaged in a program where we're distributing e-bikes to low-income folks in the city of Worcester which is the second biggest city in New England. It's kind of a center of the state, um, post-industrial city, but still is very industrial, immigrant heavy, very environmental justice oriented. And we got funds from the state to hand out a hundred e-bikes and track the usage of these e-bikes per the participants over the course of two years to measure how much greenhouse gases people choosing e-bikes versus driving and the offset of the greenhouse gas and the CO2 emissions. So that started rolling and we have now 38 bikes. We're looking to get up to 50 by next week. Um, and then we're gonna round out in October. So I want all of your audience to stay tuned because we're gonna have stories to share, but I'm super excited because our bikes are actually out riding. I'm super excited because we have a new population of bikers being given bikes in Worcester. So what's going on on the West Coast side of things? There's a lot of big news. I'm going to focus for the remainder of our time on uh, a Griffith Park Drive update. Griffith Park is a 125-year-old public park uh, in Los Angeles, one of the biggest urban parks in the country. In recent times, the park has really been pretty much a car cut-through escape from traffic in Los Angeles. Instead of being a destination, it's become a cut-through opportunity. And these apps like Waze and other types of traffic apps mm -hmm. really divert people through the park a lot. It's become a habit. There's just been this increased number of casualties on the roads of Griffith Park. At LACBC, we're advocating for a piece of the street for all cyclists and, and pedestrians and transit users in the regular city streets. But this is meant to be a public park. It just sort of put into high relief what a huge issue traffic violence is in Los Angeles. Council member Nithya Raman, who I hear you're going to be talking to a little later, took this to a new level for council members here and decided to, uh, with some pushing from local advocates, to shut down a small portion of Griffith Park Drive. And basically it's a two thirds mile, which doesn't seem like a lot. It's a very like short run and it's almost like just a little bit beyond a fire road. So the, the fact that there's been cut through traffic on this road anyways, is ridiculous. It should be for bicyclists and hikers and walkers and horseback riders. That's really what it should be for. And today, this afternoon, they're going to be shutting down this two third mile stretch permanently 
which seems like not a lot for a city of Los Angeles's sprawl and scale, but we'll take it because yeah. what it does is it signals a new political courage that we're excited about on the council to actually respond to the needs of pedestrians and our most vulnerable road users. There's a larger study that's being done to think about how to reduce cut through traffic in the park. Griffith Park is for the community, not the commute. We're going to be celebrating with council member Raman and also Assemblywoman Laura Friedman. Her office has also been pushing with Caltrans actually and, and another uh, aspect of our advocacy, which is to take a look at these off-ramps from the five freeway, two-lane off-ramps that run directly into this public park. Imagine. Well, that's part of the problem right there, don't you think? Exactly, oh, exactly. Man. You've got people flying down this freeway at freeway speeds. They've got a two-lane off-ramp that, that deposits cars at high speeds right into our, our sanctuary from cars. That's the big news out of LA today. Super important to thank those with the power and the electeds who helped make that happen so that they remember that you care about them and that they're humans. So congratulations um, on taking a moment to pause and acknowledge. We're trying to get the mayor on a bicycle as well. We've offered him an e-bike or an acoustic bike or whatever kind of bike we can get him on. We haven't gotten confirmation from his office yet that he'll actually get on the bike, but Councilwoman Raman is planning on riding up the hill about wow. two thirds mile. And we're excited to support her and celebrate her because you're right. These are humans and there is a lot of bike lash in Los Angeles and it comes at a political cost with some of the, the groups that are, are pro car. So we absolutely recognize and uh, honor our electeds who've shown this political courage. Mayor Wu here in Boston, she was a bike commuter when she was a city councilor and now she's doing weekly bike rides as mayor now. We hosted Nithya Councilwoman Raman back in, I guess, a year ago, almost in July. Uh, we had this access to a small e-bike fleet. We took her and her staff for an e-bike bike infrastructure audit in her district, CD4. It just made it more real to actually get th these folks on bicycles to see how vulnerable and just how exposed, unnecessarily exposed folks are on bicycle in LA. But I'm wondering if there's other strategies that you've been able to employ to get mayors who are not natural commuters to give it a try. I got kind of a, a stick in the mud mayor to ride with us because I went to one of his neighborhood open meetings where the press was, took the mic and I said, Mr. Mayor, first question, the only question I asked him, Mr. Mayor, will you ride a bike with me? <laughs> <laughs> and that was, there's no way he can say no. And the Boston Globe picked it up and it became this thing. So when you put it that way, Galen, it's just such a friendly ask. Will you ride a bike with me? It's not like <laughs> a real labor or a burden, yeah. you know, especially yeah, yeah. if you're being supported by a cyclist who can you know, facilitate your ride. It's amazing that that simple, elegant ask is, is so politically charged, especially in L.A. Like when you put it like, hey, will you just ride a bike with me? You know, it's as simple as that. Could be, isn't it? You know, the, the moral of the story is it ended with us getting the first protected bike lane in the city of Boston. So it works. That's right. Amazing. Galen, it's just a pleasure to talk to you, by the way, dude. <laughs> yeah, like, likewise. This is fun. Thanks for being so generous. This is good for everybody. It's good for the movement. And um, it's good to make these connections. Um, Eli Coffin from the LA CBC. Thanks so much for joining us here again on Bike Talk. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our next conversation. Last Friday, Los Angeles Councilmember Nithya Raman and California Assemblymember Laura Friedman celebrated making Griffith Park Drive in Los Angeles' biggest park closed to car traffic. The Assemblymember and the City Councilmember interviewed with Bike Talk the morning of the event. Nithya Raman and Laura Friedman have been on Bike Talk a 
number of times, some of our most frequent guests, <laughs> and now you're on together and you're working together. It's so perfect. It's great. We work together on a lot of things. It's yeah. wonderful. It's really wonderful. And despite redistricting's changes for both of us, we'll still continue to be able to work together, which is really exciting. You're announcing, you just announced a pilot street closing, which may be called opening Griffith Park Drive is going to be made permanent. There's a couple of different things that are happening here. So one piece of it is this road closure. It was a pilot. So I think there's a whole lot of people. And I think Laura has been thinking about this a hell of a lot longer than me. Um, have been thinking about how we can make Griffith Park safer for active transportation users, whether you're on a bicycle, whether you're walking, whether you're on a horse. And there's a whole bunch of work that's gone into it, a lot of activism from community groups spurred by some very, very tragic accidents and, and including the recent death of Andrew Gelmert. And all of this has been happening for a number of years now in Griffith Park. So what we are doing here and why I think it's so exciting that Laura and I are in this together is because the work that's happening together is bringing some city components to the table, is bringing some state components to the table, and it's part of a set of changes for the park that I hope will lead to some really important improvements in, in making it much, much safer. The Board of Rec and Parks Commissioner. So, you know, the city of LA has a bunch of boards and, and they have to approve a lot of the changes that, that we're thinking about making. And they approved this pilot closure of a two-third mile stretch of Griffith Park Drive. That pilot closure is going to be made permanent. But why is this particular stretch important? It's Amazing. Yes, that's right. That just happened. That just happened. Um, and the reason why that's really important is because, and I'm sure you've done this, even if you're an avid bicyclist, which is when you're trying to get from the 134 over to the five going south, it's really tempting to cut through Griffith Park. Your apps are telling you to cut through Griffith Park. And so this road closure actually prevents you from being able to do that it really, really reduces the number of cars that are going through the park that are not coming to the park to use the park, which is what we wanted to do with this. It's a little step, but in the context of the changes that we can make to the park as a whole, it's an important one. It's just very exciting. There's a couple of nitty gritty questions I have. One is that there are five freeway ramps in Griffith Park, and could you work on permanently closing a couple of them? A lot of that is being discussed and on the table in terms of next steps. Nithya has been doing incredible work um, with regard to improving the park, um, safety in the park, and people's ability to use the park. This closure is not about keeping people out of the park. It's about keeping pass-through traffic from using the park as, as a cut-through. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really about encouraging more use of the park and, and safety in the end. And I think a really important step in that is also finding ways with Griffith Park and other parks around Los Angeles of getting people to and from them um, using modalities other than single passenger cars. Uh, because not only does it create a congested and a dangerous condition, but it's also very limiting for people who don't have access to their own cars or for families, for instance, where they have one car and the car is being used for someone who's going to work. And then you've got another parent home with a child who wants to take the child to a park and sometimes they can't get there. And we have this problem with a lot of our parks with a, a lack of connection between them, sometimes a lack of um, bike paths, safe bike routes into the parks. 
um, bridges into parks. And so I was very excited a few years ago to secure $30 million to create a direct bicycle and pedestrian bridge from Glendale right into Griffith Park, which we don't have now. Um, people who live in LA may not realize that if you where's, live in Glendale- where, Where's that uh, applause for that? <laughs> yeah, where's the applause for the $30 million for the bridge? Come on, let's hear it. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was no applause because there was just stunned silence <laughs> of what the bridge will do. Stunned um, silence by the enormity of that achievement. Exactly. Getting people into the park other ways is really important. And this bridge will allow people to be able to ride a bike or walk or park on the Glendale side and walk across the bridge. And then hopefully we'll be able to make safety upgrades on the Griffith Park side so that people who get off that bridge have a, have, a, have a bike path and a safe way to get to the zoo and the Autry, the dog park and all the other places that they're going or be able to get on a shuttle bus, for instance. So there's a lot of great opportunities that exist, not just with this bridge, but by rethinking mobility around the park and getting in and out of it. Um, so this year I was able to secure $4 million for the park in the state budget to kind of hand over to Nithya um, and you know, the other folks in LA um, you know, sort of passing the ball to them to use that money for uh, safety improvements for active transportation. That's primarily what the money is for. So it's to go to these kinds of projects, looking at how to better in improve safety, looking at the bike network, looking at road closures to double down on the work that's already been done to make the park as safe as we can. It's really exciting money and it's going to be immediately useful. The bridge is going to take some time. Obviously, bridges need to be designed and constructed and you know it's going to take what it needs to take. But parallel to the road closure, Reckon Parks and our office commissioned a study of short-term, medium-term, and long-term safety improvements that can be made in the park, including looking at questions related to how do you figure out how to make those access points from the highway safer, reducing cut-through traffic that comes from other points in the park. So what you were talking about earlier in our conversation, all of that is currently being studied and some steps have been taken forward that have suggested what we can do over the next three months over the next three to 12 months, and then what's going to take a little bit longer than a year for us to be able to implement. And so what we can do is uh, with this road closure is to really start putting into place all of these short-term and medium-term improvements that will step-by-step -step make the park safer. Um, and the study has looked at, there's no decisions that have been made, but it is certainly considering the question of what happens when you have so many on and off ramps from the highway that also feed automobiles onto these roads that are currently being used by a lot of different kinds of users? And how can we make sure that those off and on ramps become safer? Is there ways to reduce access during peak hours if they're being used for cut through? Is there ways to think about how we can incentivize people to use other kinds of exits? Is there ways to maybe shut off or close certain kinds of exits? No decisions have been made on any of that, but their study is looking at all of that. And I think we can look forward and say, you know, what are the best steps that we can take and we can do them. And you're calling yes. this a road revolution. <laughs> well, it's the beginning of a road revolution. It's the beginning. And then presumably it's going to expand beyond the park. And do you want to talk about Healthy Streets LA, which is coming up for a vote? It's not a council pushed effort. I'm sure listeners to this program have probably heard a lot, of, a lot about it already, but it's basically a ballot measure. The language basically forces the council to follow their, the mobility plan 2035. 
and the mobility plan plan for a set of bicycle networks across the city. And the key operating word there is networks instead of just flashes of bike lanes here and there and asks the city whenever it's doing street resurfacing projects to implement the mobility plan as they're doing it. So that, that question of, okay, we're doing street resurfacing here. Are we going to implement what's in the mobility plan to make sure that those questions, which are now decoupled from one another and the mobility plan implementation is kind of left to council member discretion or to departmental discretion, that that choice is taken away from the city and that the mobility plan is forced to be implemented as the city does its work. That's the ballot measure that they've now gotten enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. I think we can look forward to seeing how that plays out over the next few weeks. And there's a, also a, a Nuri Martinez, the council president has a version of it, which I think we're, we're wondering if it might be better to go to the ballot. And I don't know, there's, there's some question there because then if it's not a ballot measure, it could just be reversed by another council vote. Well, so what, what council president has put forward is also really exciting. Um, and it's not, it, I think it's not in conflict with the healthy streets measure in in any real way, as far as I can tell. The council president's effort is really thinking about how do we make investments in these streets while also taking into account the fact that there are places which have much higher needs than others. Whether those needs come in the form of increased concentration of accidents, um, like through the high injury network, or whether those needs come in the form of uh, kind of, you know, need, you know uh, needs that the population in those areas is facing. And so you, and I think the measure really, the her effort really tries to take into account equity in the implementation of the mobility plan. So it's not that it wouldn't be implementing the mobility plan. It's like giving the departments a way to figure out. So, cause we, you know, I think what we're, what we're really trying to um, figure out is when you have not enough resources to be able to do the work, which is the reality of where we are in Los Angeles right now. And it's not even, um, it's not even just monetary resources. It's also just human resources. We are understaffed in almost every department, every single resurfacing project, sidewalk project, whatever it is, all of those are delayed because some of them were paused during COVID. And then now that we're back in, you know, back in action in all the departments, the staffing is so low that we are still continuing to face delays, right? So when you are in a resource scarce environment, I think you have to think about how do you put those scarce resources um, across the city? How do you allocate them? And I think the, the council president's motion really gives the city a framework to do exactly that. Yeah, I mean, we talked to Michael Schneider. He said he loves what's been added. He just, you know, it, there's just some technical te technicality about whether it's done by the council or done on a ballot. So, and while I have you here, your two bills, Laura, yeah, 802438 so and, and the omnibus bill are moving forward. Yeah, there's actually three bills that I think would be interesting to your listeners. One is 2438, which is my climate bill. That would be the first time that there's policy that makes our transportation funding at the state level uh, um, be in concert with our climate goals. 
Um, believe it or not, we don't have requirements when we fund large transportation projects to even look at their impact on emissions. So even projects that increase emissions like highway widenings can compete very well for funding against transit, for instance. So this would be the first time that we'll start taking emissions into account when we do transportation funding. So it's going to be hard. We're getting a lot of pushback against the bill from some of our local planning agencies. We have members um, on the Senate side who haven't committed to voting for it. So if this is something that's of interest to your folks, which I think it would, because if we're not funding emissions increasing projects, that gives more money to fund emissions decreasing projects like bicycle infrastructure, active transportation investments, and mass transit. So if it's of interest, I would highly suggest reaching out to your senators. It's really going to come down to the margins. It could pass you know, or fail by one or two votes. Then we have AB 1909, which is my bike omni, my omni bike bill, which makes a whole series of improvements to law to center safety for pedestrians and cyclists, mostly for cyclists. So that's got a whole bunch of stuff in there that I know that bike riders would appreciate. And then lastly, AB 1938, which shouldn't have difficulty passing, just clarifies some of the work that we did in AB 43 a few years ago, which gives cities more flexibility in how they set speed limits. So again, aimed at improving active transportation, walking, biking, and also making our roads safer. And thanks for asking about them. You know, I just this little slice that I get of a picture uh, of how this all works when I talk to you on the show has me really nervous about them passing, like getting through the appropriations and it could be killed there. And, you know, then it has to go survive elsewhere. Yeah, we had two bills that were in the transportation climate nexus space. One of them was even more prescriptive in terms of really trying to push dollars towards large projects that reduce emissions. And I think that it's common sense at this point and something that we should be doing given our climate crisis and given the fact that serious and fatal injuries to pedestrians and cyclists have gone up 30% each year in the last few years. It's, it's really a public health crisis. So putting money into safety, right. into it, infrastructure. It's, I didn't it's, realize it's, it was 30%, Laura. That yeah, I believe it's 30%. It's, it's all accidents and, and two thirds of those accidents are, um, the victims of those are cyclists and, and pedestrians. So it's been a huge increase across the country. It's not just California, it's not just Los Angeles, but we have a huge car culture. So I think we do feel it more, but the, the death numbers are rising and the serious injury numbers are rising. So I had another bill that would have helped with all of this and we couldn't get that bill heard in the Senate. Uh, so we're gonna be doing hearings on it this year, but again, it's, it's really hard when you've got planning agencies across the state of California that say, oh yeah, we recognize that climate's a big deal and we recognize that safety is a big deal, but please don't tell us what to do and let us keep spending money the same way we've always spent it. I mean, they're so reluctant to actually codify prioritizing safety and prioritizing reducing emissions that it really shows that they are not willing to change, that they want to continue doing the kinds of transportation projects that they have done for the last 75 years. And to me, that's unacceptable. So we've been at the table with them. We've taken tons of amendments to satisfy them. And we will continue to do it. But we have agencies that are just, nope, we just don't want any kind of input like this from the state. We, we want to just keep doing stuff like we've been doing. At the same time that they'll say that they're changing. If you're changing, then you shouldn't be afraid of having some requirements and some transparency about the impact that your projects will have on our climate and have on our ability to safely walk and cycle around our communities. And by the way, 
it's not just about public health, although that's a part of it when it comes to car crashes, but it's also about having an active lifestyle because diabetes is rising and the amount of dialysis centers all around The cure for that is not more dialysis centers. It's us having ways of incorporating living healthier in our everyday lives. And that means making things safer and more inviting and more convenient. And it's also about the very important ability to look your neighbors in the eye. I think that building community through being out on the streets and, and encountering everybody, just walking past them on a sidewalk or, or by cycling past them creates community and creates empathy. And I don't think that we talk about that enough. And then lastly, the equity part where owning a car is very expensive and putting gas in it is very expensive. And when we force people into doing that because we don't give them other, other options, we, we keep people from using that money on other things. Uh, and for a lot of people who are low income, that's a real burden. And we're just not giving people options. And I'm not saying we're going to take people's cars away. People always say, I want to take their car away from them. I don't want to take your car away, but I want to give you choices. And to give you choices means us making the investments and in keeping you safe and giving you an inviting way to do that. I, when I try to walk from my house to downtown Glendale, I have to cross Glen Oaks Boulevard. And to do that, I literally have to stand in the middle of Glen Oaks Boulevard for an entire light cycle because that's how they have created the timing for that road. And when I talk to the city and say that that is not, not only is it unpleasant, but it feels really unsafe to be in the middle of cars that are going 50 miles an hour with nothing and just standing on a concrete island with my daughter. People don't seem to understand why that should be unacceptable planning. So we have a lot of mindsets to change with engineers, with planners, with people who design our cities. We can't do enough. You know, we have to always be doing more. Yes. And you're here you're, and you're celebrating today and people are already asking for more in Griffith Park. Great. So, yep. They and, will. That's fine. More, more, more. And, <laughs> we should, we should be asking for more. There's Crystal Springs Drive. There's the, the flat parts. Yep. Okay. Yeah. There's a time for celebrating too. You have a champion in Nithya. I've never seen anybody put this kind of focus on, on traffic safety. And given what I said about the statistics of accidents and injuries and deaths, you know, she's really doing the important work at the right time. And I, I want to thank her for that as a user of the park. I want to thank her. Yes. And um, without your leadership and support, I think we wouldn't be able to move as quickly as we are. And also just the more people there are saying what you're saying about the state's priorities, that's the only way that change can happen. And, and you're one of the few people saying it, Laura, so. Thanks, I think that we speak for a lot of people, especially a lot of moms out there who are very frustrated with what they've seen. Uh, I think it's time to let the women uh, lead in this space a bit more. And I would say that to the bike groups too. Include the women, you don't see enough of them, I think in these in the bike circles. It's, it's really important to bring people in who aren't necessarily people who are huge recreational road, you know, users of bikes. I, I'm, you know, I'm not someone who can ride 30 miles, you know, in a day. I do ride a bike in Sacramento, but I do it in a business suit and, you know, little, you know, not bike shoes at all, uh, like my little work shoes. There's sort of this silent army of, of people who are not the sort of spandex wearing warriors, but who want, who still want safe roads and I think make space for us and include us too. Absolutely. And I think it's <laughs> I love these delayed delayed cheers. <laughs> and it's great to see you two together. It's very inspiring. Does it feel kind of groundbreaking 
to the both of you? Or is this something that happens all the time where you have a state and local working I, together? The partnership that I have with Laura, I, I've only been here for a year and a half, so I don't, she knows better than me, but this is the strongest partnership I have with a state uh, state representative and it's been incredibly fruitful. So I, I feel very, very grateful for it. Very grateful. Government works much better when different levels of government work together and it doesn't always happen. People kind of get into their little uh, turfs and they want to protect their turfs. And actually there's a multiplier effect as far as I'm concerned, that coordination can't be understated. I have some representatives who do work closely with us and I have some that just don't, we don't hear from. And I have some that are almost hostile at times and we don't serve the people well if we're not well coordinated. And Nithya and her office have been since day one amazing about jumping on, I think it's bi-weekly meetings we do. We do bi-weekly Zooms, yeah. right? We, twice twice a month. What, and we do, we, you and I do them once a month, which is right. Yeah, we do once a month. It feels like more. We do once a month Zooms, but we text each other. We we talk, our offices talk all the time. All the time. So so whenever they have a problem, they know to call us. And we, we can't always help, but if we can, we jump in. You know, they've had issues with um, homeless encampments with on Caltrans and other property that they don't control as a city. And we've tried to help with that. And, you know, I, I think the fact that she is not afraid to pick up the phone and ask or demand and uh, be vocal and to advocate is super important. We like that because we can't help if we don't know what's happening. And we don't always hear from the same constituents that Nithya does. Uh, we don't have people in trucks who are city employees driving around, letting us know about problems like she does. Uh, it's been very fruitful and certainly combining forces on things like budget asks for the state level is really key. And now that with that money, I know that she will use it to the purpose for which it was intended in conjunction with her community, you know, talking to the people who are impacted. That makes me know that sooner rather than later, that money's going to be out in the field making a world of difference for people. There'll be lots of opportunities for celebration coming up too. And I did want to acknowledge that Laura, you're not going to be representing the park anymore, right? Um, I will not be. Um, in yeah. redistricting, they cut Griffith Park out. I, I'm sort of shifting over to Hanson Dam, which that's where my horse is now. So, so, oh, that's, um, so now Hanson so. Dam will be the beneficiary of your Sacramento advocacy. But I will say that I think your contribution to Griffith Park is they're so concrete and they're going to be so visible on the street. I'm sure you'll have incredible impact uh, in the new region. And actually we share a lot of overlap in the new region as well. You know, I think it's really remarkable to see the stamp of change that you've made in a place. Thank you. I feel a little bit like this event today is, is my goodbye. I mean, I'm certainly still going to- Not goodbye. Like, We're not letting you leave. <laughs> we'll do my best to represent the park, you know, always to, 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 to make sure that it's represented well, but I won't be its direct um, representative anymore. And that is really sad. I'm going to have to change my Zoom background. It's, it's been the observatory for the past six years, and now it'll have to be something else. And that is sad for me. Yeah, we'll find you a good new monument. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you, Nick, for your time and for Bike Talk's uh, interest in these issues, continued interest in these issues. Yeah. And when did you find out that this is each of your favorite podcasts? <laughs> Wow. Wow. Uh, oh, I don't know. I probably go back, what, 30 years? Does that sound right? No. <laughs> what did I find out? This is my favorite book. I'm not answering that question. That's okay. Anyway, it's great to have you on. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Bye. You're listening to Bike Talk. 
Next, Carter Lavin trains bike advocates to be more politically effective. Today, he's with Stacy Randecker, an activist with Safe Streets Rebels in San Francisco. Stacy and the Rebels slow down and block traffic to bring attention to conditions for non-drivers. This is Carter Lavin and Stacy Randecker. Carter is a climate activist who helps groups and individuals build political power. And Stacy is somebody who will do anything to get better streets for people to transform our cities. And so Carter and Stacy, you're both in San Francisco, and it seems like you should talk. Carter, well, so nice to meet you, finally. Yeah. Stacy, nice to meet you. And Nick, thanks for putting us together. I'm definitely one of those Oaklanders who go to San Francisco for a special occasion, but thank you for helping connect us. Yeah. So what do you have to say to each other? We need help. I don't know if you've noticed, but things are a little slow moving over here in San Francisco. And Mm -hmm. by slow, I mean progress, not the speed of our streets. That's for sure. Well, I think San Francisco and cities like Seattle or other places across the country are really fascinating studies of how political power works and how people can be kind of hoodwinked, frankly, because every politician or lots of politicians, it's very easy for them to say, oh, of course, we think climate change is terrible. Of course, we need to save the world. And yeah, bikes, yay. And we're going to leap in action with a 30-year bike plan study and study and committee and study. And this is kind of the story throughout America, throughout California, definitely throughout the Bay Area. And some cities and some electeds definitely punch a lot harder and push a lot harder. And I know that there's a lot of bike advocates and public safety advocates who get very, very frustrated to hear this talk from elected officials. And what elected officials are saying, they're like, hey, look, I'm open to the idea, but you need to force my hand. And a big thing that it's been exciting seeing in San Francisco across the Bay Area is activists getting a lot louder, a lot more powerful, growing their numbers, and frankly, being a little bit pushier because this is how you win. I think we've shown what being kind of polite and going with the flow gets us a lot of agitation. But frankly, it's time for going a lot bigger and building political power. You're so you singing all my songs here. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I'm just looking because I have a countdown for all of these things, mm-hmm. all of the promises and all of the mm-hmm. big stances that they make. And it has been three years, four months, 25 days and 18 mm-hmm. hours since they have declared a climate emergency in San Francisco. Yeah. And yet transportation the number one contributor for San Francisco, California, and the United States, they're doing nothing pretty much to get us to change how we move. And it's a bit aggravating. How can you say this and then not do anything for it? Yeah. And that is extremely frustrating. And it's unfortunately the role of us as activists to say, okay, great. They've expressed their intent. And so in those three years and however many months, our job, collectively speaking, as campaigners and activists is saying, okay, well, let's knock on as many doors as we can. Over those three years, how many new friends have we made and introduced them to this concept of bike lanes? How many people have we said, here's the mayor's phone number. We need you to call her right now and say, shorten this timeline, get on this. And it's one of those things, if I could tell you, oh, I'm going to do the laundry tomorrow, I'm going to do the dishes tomorrow, but I never get around to it. Oh, okay, he said he'll do it tomorrow. And that happens for three years and several months. That's a problem. It's on us to not just be louder as individuals. It's not like, oh, Stacey, for the 7,292nd time, that's <laughs> yes, not the thing. Uh-huh. And this is something that I think a lot of activists understand. That's, oh, we need the mayor of any city to hear about this 50,000 times. The ideal would be hearing it from 50,000 different people once not the same hundred people. And I think one thing about bike activism that's so important is it's about meeting new people, whether they're on bikes or not, 
and saying, here's the mayor's phone number, here's the email address, send this email, call, here's the script to say. And so every bike party showing up with flyers, quarter sheets, here's the phone number, here's the person to call and yell at. Because if elected officials feel like they will be called out for having such long timelines, they're going to step up and do better. But if people feel like they can get away with saying, oh yeah, I'll totally get to that tomorrow. And if everyone gives them the golf clap for that, then they don't really have much motivation to do better, to go harder. What happens when you call the mayor? So it's all different depending on different offices. But basically, whether it's a senator or congressperson, mayor, assembly member, generally speaking, there's a front desk person, intern, whoever, and they say, okay, you're calling about what issue? And someone says, oh, here's a speech. Okay, so you're calling about issue X and you're pro or you're against. And they say, I'm pro bike safety. Okay, cool. I'll let the mayor know. And then what happens is they make a tick mark, basically. And generally speaking, at the end of the week, a lot of congressional staffers or senators up and down the chain, they say there's a report back to the mayor or the chief of staff saying, hey, by the way, we got X number of calls on this thing, this number of calls on that thing. And it's one of those issues where a hundred calls to an elected official that's not on the federal level, a hundred calls to a local elected official in one day about a single issue is a huge amount. That defines their day. That is what they think about that day. And if you do that every day for a week, that starts to become something that the elected official says, okay, there seems to be a lot of heat here. There's a lot of energy. People actually care. Because the big thing, besides they want to do well and fulfill their campaign promises, but elected officials want to make sure their constituents are happy and they want to make sure they win re-election. This is their career to do this kind of work. And if they feel like they're getting a very clear signal from lots and lots of people who they think are reasonable people that they want to help, it becomes a lot easier for them to realize, oh, we should work on this. And even if the person is not favorably disposed, to put it gently, is not favorably disposed to the idea of protected bike lanes, if they start getting hundreds of calls over the course of a week from people all over their community, the people who could vote them into office or out of office, What that tells them is there's a lot of political power here brewing that come election season could either help me or hurt me. And so I should pay more attention here. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about getting on the radar in a real way. And it is shocking how few calls a person needs to generate in the course of a day or so from different people to be able to get on someone's radar. And if you can sustain that for a couple of days in a row, you are now very much on their mind. So this is, I guess, what is difficult, or maybe you could rank it in terms of, is it an email? Is it a phone call? Is it public comment at a meeting? Mm -hmm. Is it the mayor? Is it the elected district regional representatives? How many people or who's most important or... So Stacey, that question is a really essential question and a thing to keep in mind for any campaigners regardless of what city they're in, is what is the pathway to power? At the end of the day, it is not the mayor who's going to be pouring concrete. It's not the mayor who's going to be setting up bollards or whatever. That's a union worker in the Department of Infrastructure or something who reports up to a city administrator, and that person reports to the mayor. City council members are great. They do have financial ability to set budgets and things like that. But in almost every city, it will be the mayor who's the one who can pick up the phone, make the call, make a thing happen, or make a thing go away. And so it's good to direct the attention to the mayor. 
Politicians might say, oh, we have an official process, and especially in cities like in the Bay Area or places that are more familiar with bike lanes. They might have some official process to request one and what have you. That's fine. Do that too, along with calling the mayor, because official processes can be accelerated or changed or improved with external political pressure from a mayor. And then to your point about calls and emails and what works, fundamentally, Step one is like when you're trying to get volunteers, what is the thing that a volunteer will do? Yes, it is better to have a thousand people in person doing the public comment at the two o'clock Thursday meeting in all room A. That's probably really hard to get a thousand people to do that. But generally speaking, the harder it is for a person to do, the more impressive and the more politically oomphful it is for the politician to receive it. So, oh, here's an email. It's like, okay, well, that's just an email. That's a form email. You know, it's fine. That's not nothing. If you say, okay, here's 5,000 names that have signed this petition and now I'm delivering it to you with 100 people in tow and we have a megaphone and media cameras, that'll get their notice. Phone calls are great. And in-person meetings are good as well. Frankly, it's a lot like a thank you card. It's a lot like hanging out with a friend. Like what's better, an hour with your friend or two minute text conversation? or just a quick happy birthday Facebook message. But then there's the other end of the spectrum. You don't need to write the love letter. You don't need to write something particularly lengthy. Not everyone needs to write sonnet about this. You really just need to make the call, say a couple of words, and then hang out. The key is the volume, the number of folks taking the action, and then making sure that that is sustained. That sustained pressure is how we win. So on the letters, do they even read them? Or is it better to just have four sentences or something? They're not going to read it anyway. Yeah. So they'll read one. If the letters are all vaguely the same, cool, we get what you're saying. And so that's why volume of letters is good. So you could have 100 people or 200 people write a postcard. That's great. Mm -hmm. Unique enough. People aren't going to read the treatise on whatever. They're not going to read 50 treatises. And so a really strong letter, much like I'm going to point to the Declaration of Independence because it's a really well-written document. Here's the list of grievances. Here's what's going on. Lots of people signing it, doing a delivery. So stuff like that is great. And depending on where you are in the campaign and what the thing is, when you are doing the in-person stuff, it's important to have a variety of voices. So you don't need to have six people who are all going to be read as more or less the similar type of person. You want to have the soccer mom with the e-cargo bike and the kids. You want to have at least one of the young professionals. You want to have the immigrant family who are talking about their experiences, the person who can't drive because of physical reasons. You want to have the full Captain Planet variety of people, the variety of voices, because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, some politicians are going to be more interested in what certain people have to say than with others. And you want to make it very clear that there's really two sides. One is Everybody who's anybody who's cool and is good, they're on your side. And one or two weird losers on the other side. The more you can make that (laughs) clear, better chances you have of winning. The best way to do that is shine a bright light on yourself, demonstrate the variety of friends. And some people listening to this might think, oh, I don't know that many folks. That's kind of hard. Well, make a petition, go make some friends, go talk to other people, talk to people who don't look like you, sound like you, act like you, think like you. Talk to them about this. You don't know who's out there who'd love to hop on a bike and be protected. A really key thing is to actually expand the electorate, so to speak, expand the number of people who are engaging, because that's how you really boost the numbers. How much does the press help getting press coverage of your issue? Yeah. So good press coverage is amazing. And it's so, so worthwhile. 
because what good press coverage can do is help get that big pulse of activity that gets you to that next level. You have 100 people who do a rally or a protest or some event, you get media camera there, and now the news gets covered. So 10,000 more people find out about it. And then boom, you have another 300 people looking at you, you have another 300 allies or something. And then also, it is a good way to show politicians that you're serious. Oh, there's press about it. there's attention. However, bad press can really screw you up pretty terrible. Bad press marginalizes you, makes you seem like you're some wacko, puts you behind the eight ball. It's going to make everything else you do harder. And so I strongly recommend that people kind of get their house in order, bulk up their numbers, have their talking points, have their pitch ready before doing something that they think is going to get a lot of press. I don't want to scare people off. You don't have to have sat down and thought this all through, but just be aware that someone might look at you and not like what they see. And if they have a microphone or a megaphone or a news station, that's going to be a problem for you. So being aware of how you are being perceived, you are angry and clad in spandex and riding a $3,000 bike. It's not going to win you a lot of friends versus if you are diverse families and look at the little kids on their little tricycles and that's what's going to make you more popular. So the press can be wonderful be a huge weapon against you. That's an amazing tool. And a key part about engaging with press is being very mindful of the fact that someone might come to look at what you're doing with not necessarily the friendliest of eyes, or they might not understand it. And so you have to work with the press to help educate them and bring them along. Gotcha. One of the other things that has been on my mind is I'm tired. I haven't even been at this as long as many other people, but I'm tired of the block by block and the fight and having to convince and cajole and whatever. And so part of what I'm looking for is how to sort of hack the system. What are things that can be done so that it isn't just Stacy and her 50 friends that are mm-hmm. or more of us, of course. But it's not just us on one issue or one part of the city or whatever, that this is how San Francisco should be. This is how all cities should be. How can we get this so that it isn't so hard for advocates? So one deep, deep truth is that this is tiring. And yeah, this is hard. Nothing feels better than a win, but those are fewer and far between, but they are great. The answer is we need a thousand Stacey. And basically a big part is you and your 500 friends How do you help the folks who have more energy know what they're doing a little bit more and help get more people plugged in? How do you build momentum? How do you expand this? Because I realize I say the word, you, 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 you need to do this. Mm -hmm. The campaign for better bikes on whichever street you want needs to have someone knocking on doors, needs to have someone making a flyer, passing the flyer out. Those can all be different people. They all, in fact, should be different. Frankly speaking, if a campaign director, someone who's leading the charge, finds themselves doing a lot of things that are not delegating or training people to take over tasks, that's a big red flag that that person is on the path to burn. Mm -hmm. You can't do this all yourself. And it's a lot easier if you don't do it all yourself. And so, I mean, you don't get points for ethically sacrificing your happiness and your time all by yourself. So imagine bike parties coming up or big rides coming up. A person, a single individual, they can set up a petition online, change.org, something like that. They write up a quick little thing. They print out a whole bunch of quarter sheets that they can pass out that say, hey, sign the petition on this website. One person could make a flyer, print it out, and pass it out. And then what happens is a whole bunch of people, 100 people, whoever, sign the flyer. The key thing is 
you, the person who made the flyer, follows up with all the signers and say, hey, I appreciate you sign it. You clearly care about this. We are going to have another event soon. Would you like to help pass out flyers? And then the first person, person A, doesn't need to be flyer passer outer person. You are now soliciting volunteers to do that. And so the more you delegate, the more you train, and the more you help people step into their own power, the more you help people step into their ability to launch their own thing. And that's how we make that unstoppable bike juggernaut, the all-powerful bike lobby, so to speak, that we need to flood City Hall. You can put out the signal and your top volunteers will start calling their volunteers. But that's how campaigns are won. You have a whole lot of people working towards a selective goal. And a big part is you're tired and you're angry. And so are lots and lots of other people. And you're more in tune. You're more knowledgeable. You have more expertise. You may have lost a lot more. So you've learned a lot more than these folks. And so helping others get to closer to where you are, helping others who are confused, translate that anger into action, both helps win the big fight. And it also helps them not just be angry and confused. Anyone who's, ah, it should be a bike lane, but can't fight City Hall. And you say, actually, you can fight City Hall, been fighting it for years. I would love to help you fight City Hall more. Here's how you do it. We, in fact, have this meeting. You bring a friend. That's how you really start getting the wheels turned. So I've been doing these bike advocacy trainings. Did one last month. We had 50 people from across the country tuning in. I had one on September 8th coming up. Free training. It's about an hour and a half long where we dive into a lot more of these details. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of passion for this type of stuff. And it's really about how do we engage that? How do we empower that? And I think there's also a question of how do we cross-pollinate ideas? And so, Stacy, as someone who's put your body on the line, as someone who's been doing this, what I would love to hear, what's some things I should share with an ex-bike advocate in Chattanooga or someone in Canton, Ohio, or what are some lessons that you've learned, hard-fought or otherwise, that you think other bike advocates should know? Totally. I'm down with that, although I'm by no means an expert. But this is the kind of thing that I'm trying to work on because we can't keep doing this. We're burning the planet. We are killing people at ridiculous rates. 46,020 people were killed by cars last year. And the number just keeps going up and everybody's just shruggy. What are you going to do? And how can there not be more outrage? And what we're doing to people by locking them into cars and not making transit faster and being able to bike anywhere you want without fear. And that's something that you do very well. And I've worked on Twitter for a while. And it's very impressive. Clearinghouse of knowledge and information of all things car violence. You have the numbers, you have the stats, and you have the passion. And I think one thing that is very impressive is you're eloquent at describing it. And yeah, I think this is no for anyone listening. You got to know your stuff. Stacey knows lots and lots and lots of things. Very impressive. Here's the big picture, the small picture. Stacey, as you were just breaking down, it's not just climate. It's also traffic death. Here's the vision of liberation mobility. How do you express all these things together as an orchestra of points? That's a big spot. And yeah, and then making sure lots of other people are doing the same thing. Yeah, this is great. I've been jotting down furiously and I'm going to be using this. So thank you, Carter. Always happy to talk and help people with a lot of passion kind of navigate the weird, weird, weird world of politics a little bit better. Because yeah, we got to win. Clock is ticking. And together we can save a bunch of lives. And the planet. We need capes. Because we're the ones who are saving the planet. <laughs> September 8th is the next one. September 8th. And yes, Nick, hopefully you can tune in and anyone listening yeah. in can tune in September 8th. Sounds great.
It's a date. You're listening to Bike Talk. Next, biking fits into the overall picture of a livable community with Taylor Nichols and his guests representing the Livable Communities Initiative, Ed Mendoza and Jenny Holtz. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Bike Talk, and I'm Taylor Nichols. There's a philosophy or an idea in the cycling world called Aaronsville. And Aaronsville is this two-mile circle around wherever you live. If you live in West Hollywood or Memphis, Tennessee, two miles around your house is your Aaronsville. And what the bicycling community is trying to advocate for and pushing for is making that two-mile radius, that Aaronsville, safe for you to ride a bike to the laundromat. We used to say to the video store, but no one goes to the video store anymore, or the grocery store, or the kiosk, or the bar, or whatever it is. And there's a new organization in Los Angeles called LCI, Livable Communities Initiative. And it started during the pandemic, and it was started by one of Bike Talk's co-hosts, Lindsay Sturman. And today we have their chief of staff, Jenny Hans, and their policy director, Ed Mendoza, here to talk about LCI and what they're doing to improve this idea of Aaronsville. Jenny and Ed, welcome to Bike Talk. Tell me what you guys have been working on recently. Tell me when you started, how you got started, and what's your mission statement? Yeah, well, we started about a year and a half ago, and a group called Hodge, Hangout Do Good, which is a group of progressive activists in Los Angeles, we're looking for a solution to the housing crisis. And Lindsay, who's a member of Hodge, obviously has an incredible wealth of knowledge about bike and transportation. And those two issues were married. And the idea of housing built around transportation, mobility options that are car-free. And essentially, the idea is to create what we call 15-minute communities, where people can get most of their daily or weekly needs met without having to get into a car. And to do that, we want to build a couple stories of affordable housing above local businesses and have wide sidewalks and bike lanes and bus lanes, slow the cars down, have safe streets for people to have a real livable, walkable community where they can have alfresco dining and a corner grocery store and the barbershop all right there at their fingertips. And so they don't have to get in a car. And so they have a way to get to public transportation if they want to go farther. And we sort of envision this network of bike lanes and bus lanes and these LCI communities throughout the city connected to one another by the metro so that you really can not just access your own livable community and neighborhood, but can connect to other livable communities and neighborhoods throughout the city. There was an article in LAS where you had some pictures of Westwood Boulevard and the picture of Westwood Boulevard. I don't know if our listeners know Westwood Boulevard is a north south street that goes right into the UCLA campus. And I think you said how many thousands of cars go in there every day? Yeah, I would say between 60,000 to 100,000 cars a day commute into Westwood because you've got a lot of UCLA students who commute. You have many, many workers who commute even as far as two or three hours to get into Westwood, which really increases traffic in the neighborhood. And our idea is imagine if those people could live right up the street in affordable apartments and could bike or walk or scooter their way to campus and get around without having to get into the car. It would reduce traffic for everyone and help our climate. It's funny because the people that are against it always say, when you build up, you're going to increase traffic. But in many cases, it's actually the opposite, it seems like. 
you know, the state is going to require LA to add at least half a million new homes in the next few years. And people are afraid that's going to just add to our traffic nightmare. But how and where you build really can minimize those traffic impacts if we build in a way melded with transportation options and micromobility options near job centers, near universities, near transit, then really we can actually take cars off the road because people who won't have to commute in anymore, they could live right there. So the idea is really to build in a way that changes behavior. And there's actually research now. UC did a study, a transportation study showing that the built environment has a massive effect on car ownership rates. And if you build housing without parking, car ownership drops from 80% to 38%. So really you can reduce car ownership and have it drop in half simply by building housing without parking near transit and again, near these amenities. So really we can get cars off the road in LA and everybody wants that. Right. I want to bring Ed in really quick, but before I do, I teach a class at UCLA and an acting class. I live in West Hollywood and I ride my bike to UCLA and it's difficult to ride there. There is not bicycle infrastructure. There's a little one on Wilshire for a little ways, but there's not bicycle infrastructure that allows you to get there. And my city councilman, Paul Koretz, nixed the idea of even studying what bike lanes might do on Westwood Boulevard to allow people to not own a car and ride a bike there. And that's why we're glad to make a change in CD5. Ed, what are the policies that LCI is working on to create some of these livable communities? Oh, that's a really, really big question. (laughs) (laughs) Usually what we do is, or at least in the policy world, right now the hot topic is parking minimums or eliminating parking minimums. Can you explain what that is really quick? Right. A parking minimum is very simple. It's a government mandate that any new development or any new building must have on-site parking. And there's usually a set amount per units or per commercial space, and you have to build it no matter what. And that's changing. But isn't that good? Doesn't that mean that people can go there and park and go to that restaurant or can leave their car at that a apartment building? Or, um, Well, it is good to an extent. If you live in a building, you could park there. You, it's a little bit more convenient for you. But it comes at a really, really big cost. When you have parking minimums, all of a sudden, the building that you're constructing is going to cost way, way, way more. Is there Uh, a price tag on that? There are multiple studies, right. So there are many, many studies. And Donald Troop, professor at UCLA, has been the czar on this. I think right now it's about $50,000 to $100,000 a stall. Wow. A building. And a building will have many stalls, right? So if you just add all this together, you're adding millions of dollars of cost for something that could be mitigated in another way, or that could be achieved in a more efficient manner. Can you explain how it might be achieved? Because I can imagine that that is going to be a blowback question by NIMBYs, people who live in the area who don't want residents of this new four-story apartment building on Westwood Boulevard to park in their neighborhood. How do we accomplish that? Okay, so that's a really good question. (laughs) So currently, some cities have eliminated these parking minimums, but a lot of developers and a lot of communities still won't build buildings without parking in them. 
a lot of communities want parking in them. A lot of communities feel that infrastructure does not suffice and does not accommodate a parking-free living style. Right. So what we actually have to do is we have to look at communities where parking-free buildings do work and learn from them. We have a local case study, downtown Los Angeles, where we have essentially thousands of units that are currently occupying old 1920s buildings. These are buildings that obviously had no built-in parking. Right. But they're all leased up and people live there, no cars. So we asked ourselves, how are these filled up? And what we found is that one, the most obvious answer is transportation available. You're near bus lines, you're near rail, and you're near bike lanes. The second thing that we found out was that not everyone that lived in these parking-free buildings have no car. Some people did have a car. And those people that do have a car had options to park their car at a nearby facility. Oh, okay. So we're talking if people are willing to walk four, five blocks, you know, a five to 10 minute walk, people will gladly rent a parking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take a take a cheaper apartment if they don't use their car every day and then rent a parking space offsite. Exactly. So we're kind of taking that philosophy onto LCI and selecting. Great. I love uh, that. Right. I noticed, Jenny, the pictures in the article in the LAist and the picture of Westwood Boulevard currently is so ugly. It's just not an attractive street at all. There's no trees. There's no people on the street, hardly. Much of the picture is taken up with cars, either in the parking lane or in the moving lane. And then right below it, you have a picture of what Westwood Boulevard could look like. And I wonder if you could describe what Westwood Boulevard or any boulevard like Westwood, whether it be Santa Monica Boulevard or Market Street in San Francisco or Michigan Avenue in Chicago, what those streets could look like under LCI's plan. Yeah, I think the issue in LA is we downzoned the entire city in the 80s and made it very difficult to build any housing on our commercial streets. And so what you have is miles and miles of one-story buildings and auto body shops along Pico Boulevard and what we call dead streets and car sewers that have no design. And it's really not a place where you would want to hang out. And what we want to do is create what we call sticky streets where people really want to hang out. They become destinations. It's really incredible If you think just in LA, one example is Third Street Promenade, where you've taken the cars off this area and people want to go there and hang out. People want to be hanging out in an area where you can go to restaurants, walk around, go to shops without being terrified that a car is going to barrel down your street. Yeah, where your children can walk, right? Yes, and where your kids can walk. And, you know, we've had some horrific accidents in Los Angeles over the last few weeks cases with cars just absolutely speeding out of control, killing people. And hey, sped down a residential road into a home. There's a lot of crazy driver behavior right now that has made this conversation about safe streets really come to the forefront right now. And people want a solution. I have a colleague whose husband was killed in a crosswalk crossing the street on Lincoln Boulevard in Venice. And you know, it's happening all the time. Pedestrians right. are getting killed. And I think we're just in a moment where we're ready to look for safer streets and more beautiful streets. Honestly, we're talking about revitalizing some of these villages and, you know, having more eyes on the street, more people on the street that's built in customers for those businesses. When you have people walking around who live right above, who can come down to your coffee shop, it really is about revitalizing some of these streets and some of these communities and neighborhoods where pedestrians have largely disappeared. 
And I just want to address your earlier point, something that Ed said, and he's absolutely right. Right now, even in Santa Monica, which is a wealthy West Side community, 25% of the people who live there do not own a car already. And right right now we force those people to pay for parking they never use in order to rent an apartment. So right now, really what we're advocating for is the right to live car free and not to have to pay for parking that you don't use. It doesn't mean you can't have a car. You can have a car. You don't have to live there, first of all. We think this is going to appeal to a specific subset of people, seniors who no longer drive. My parents are 77. They don't like driving in LA. They live essentially a car-free life. And then young people in their 20s who would love to live in a high-opportunity neighborhood, either near their university or near the job center in Culver City, and then scooter up to work. And they'd be willing to either ditch their car until they are older and maybe have a family and need, need a car, or... You know, they could, again, lease a space from a city lot. We're sort of saying decouple this idea and stop forcing people to build parking when you build housing. Oh, that's an interesting terminology to decouple parking from housing. That's the first time I've heard that. And I really like that. You can still have a car, you can still park your car, but it's not connected to your housing. Yeah, it's not required. In order to rent a place, you're not required to pay for parking. Right now it raises rent about $200 a month to have that parking space forced on you. And if You don't want to have a car. And by the way, in other cities, I lived in Chicago and I lived in DC and I lived car free in both of those cities. In Chicago, I lived right above a business in mixed use housing without parking and right near my campus at Northwestern. And when I was in DC, I lived right near the Metro and I didn't need a car. It was only when I moved to LA that I felt like I had to get a car. And so I feel like we just need to give people this option, give them the option to live car light or car free in LA. And it's a real culture shift here because we are the ultimate car city in LA. And so people really feel like that can't change. But the reality is it can change. If we change the rules and we change how we build and we build these walkable, bikeable communities, then it will be possible for people to do this. And we're not saying everybody has to do it. Not everybody's going to want to live this way, but we want to give people the option to do it. And then they could rent a zip car or take an Uber if they need it. We have all kinds of car sharing options, and we really have a lot of data showing young people are adopting those technologies. You know, you can look on Turo and find out cars in your neighborhood and just go rent it for the hour or for the day. Even the automakers, Volkswagen did some market research showing that young people are more interested in car subscription than car ownership, 61% of 18 to 34-year-olds. And then a huge number of young people are not even getting driver's licenses. 40% of 19-year-olds don't have a driver's license. So I think that in the era of Uber and Lyft and other mobility options, and also just given how expensive cars are and how expensive gas is. And and insurance, insurance, it's a huge expense we don't need to force on people. And we could remove that expense and lift some people out of poverty by building in a way that makes it possible for them to live car-free that brings up that image of during the pandemic when food opportunities were prevalent and there were a lot of places where people were going to get food, they were showing up in their food line in a huge, great big SUV and getting a handout of food. So I wondered how much money they were spending on the insurance or the upkeep or the gas. A huge amount. And those costs have been calculated. I'm not going to cite the statistic, but it may be somewhere around 8,000 a month on average that we're adding onto people that is unnecessary. And I also want to say many European countries are way ahead of us on this. Paris, Germany, they're really, yeah, yeah, Barcelona, absolutely. And of course the Dutch have been doing this for a long time, 
But I think that it's a worldwide movement, these 15-minute communities, because we really need to tackle climate change. And the only ways to do that is to get people out of their vehicles. Yeah. UC Berkeley had a study showing that building housing near jobs and lowering vehicle miles traveled are the two most powerful things Los Angeles can do to combat climate change. And the LCI combines both of them. So if we were to build this way, we could have the greatest impact on climate change than any other policy the city could enact. And Culver City this week, their city council unanimously agreed to study the LCI. We're already in the Los Angeles housing element. We just need our leaders to act and make this happen and make the zoning changes that are necessary to allow and to actually incentivize this kind of gentle density, parking-free, mixed-use housing on our commercial streets combined with street changes to add those safe bike lanes and make these communities livable. We think there's a movement and that we can make it happen. And we welcome people to join our movement. Oh, that's great. I want to give you an opportunity to promote your social media platforms. But before we do, I want to end really quickly on Ed. Jenny kind of threw you under the bus when she called you a bike nerd at the (laughs) beginning of the interview before we started recording. But I want to bring up the idea that you and I, while I'm not your age, are pretty confident cyclists and we can ride almost anywhere. But Jenny is a mother and often travels with her child. And I wonder if you could talk really briefly about the kind of changes to the roadway that allow someone like Jenny to join someone like you or me on the road with their bike, even with their kid or their groceries. All right. So first statement is Los Angeles is not safe for cyclists. Los Angeles is incredibly dangerous for cyclists today. And very few of us bravely go out every day and cycle the streets. It's it's terrifying. It's very common when you hop on your bike and you're cycling down to the grocery store to have potentially dying in the back of your mind. And that is something that no one should ever have to go through. I have had friends that should bike around LA and I have to be honest with them. I say, if you do bike, you have to be incredibly careful and you have to take upon the knowledge that it's dangerous. So we have to change that. We have to change that entirely. And we have to come together with politicians to let them understand that there is a future where cycling is safe in Los Angeles. I mean, Los Angeles is mostly a flat city and we have the best climate in the world. Los Angeles should be the best city in the world for cycling. Absolutely. Recently, the Biden administration has granted billions of dollars worth of grants towards cycling infrastructure. The state has focused many, 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 many dollars towards cycling infrastructure and facilitated the process onto building this infrastructure. So right now it's a matter of getting together with politicians and setting out a very clear path, make these protected bike lanes, cycleways, bike paths available to everyone in Los Angeles. I want to feel comfortable letting my seven-year-old daughter cycle in Los Angeles. And if a cycling lane is not good enough for her, then it's not good enough for anyone. And we have to approach cycling through that lens. And only through that lens will we have a great city for cyclists. I was just in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they have bike lanes, protected, separate bike lanes all over the city now. And I hate to see a city like my hometown now, Los Angeles, being left behind. Ed and Jenny, thank you very much. Jenny, I wonder if you could give us quickly your social media platform site so that listeners can find you guys online, donate money, donate time, donate energy, anything to help the cause. 
Sure. Thank you. You can go to livablecommunitiesinitiative.com. And on Facebook, you can find us at, at Livable Communities LA. And on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at LCI underscore LA. Great. I want to thank Lindsay Sturman for founding LCI and letting me do this interview today. And Jenny and Ed, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike. Oh, catch yourself a bike.